Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. Um, I'm feeling a little. I feel a little rough this morning. Anybody got the seasonal allergies thing going on? Anyway, listen. I don't know about like the whole like the Benadryl thing. I just feel like I got to like drink the whole batch full of it right now to <laughs> make it through. Uh, yeah, I'm just feeling a little gross. I'm going to pray so that I don't have distractions, and then we're going to dive into God's word. Okay. Lord in heaven, I'm not equipped or capable of the task at hand. And um, because of these things, I would ask for your help. More than this, I would ask for your spirit's help to understand and apply the truths of the scriptures. We want to be people of the book. Our church wants to stand for truth. So allow for the truth of these scriptures to saturate our minds and challenge and convict our hearts that we would become more like the Savior. I pray in his name. Amen. All right, so last week I walked us through the centerpiece of Mark's gospel. The very center of it, it's there on purpose, where Peter makes the claim at the question of who is Jesus really? He says, you are the Christ. Matthew's gospel says, he's the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, yes, this is true. This is exactly who I am. This is why I have come. And you're not seeing what Messiahship actually looks like clearly. So he walked through that whole idea that the, the big idea of last week or the title of last week's message was sight and kingdom clarity. Because to be right about Jesus is the, is the only launching point that we have. If we're not right about Jesus and who he is, we can't be right about his mission in the world. If we're not right about his mission in the world, we can't be right about his kingdom. If we're not right about his kingdom, then we have no reason to invite other people to it. We have no right to invite other people to it if we're wrong about Jesus and his kingdom. So we talked about that last week. This week, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the next part of the same passage. So we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through to 33. And now we're going to be looking at Mark verse 30, uh, 8, verse 34 to 9, verse 1. And it's a continuation of the same idea. So I want us to make sure that we have that in our minds. But before we do that, I want to remind you of where we've been. We have now been in the gospel of Mark for eight months. We're exactly halfway through the book. And it's kind of perfect that I can, I can kind of lay this out for you because these are the major themes of Mark's gospel. You've got them in your notes if you're the note taker type. There are five key themes in the gospel of Mark. And each of these has been present up until this point of Mark's gospel. And actually all five of them are present in chapter eight of Mark's gospel, the exact center of the book. It's not on accident, it's on purpose, okay? So the first one is this, the most important one, is the messianic secret. That Jesus has not been willing to this point to out himself about who he is and what it meant to be the Messiah. The demons had rightly identified him. Peter has just most recently identified him in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And earlier on, in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the author says, this is the start of the good news of the kingdom of God and Jesus, God's king. That's the only things that we have about this. But Jesus is very, very cagey about allowing people to know who he is for one reason. If he outs that he's the Messiah and people don't have the right view of Messiahship in place, they're going to try and make him an earthly king. They're going to try and establish the kingdom of God as, as here on earth as opposed to what Jesus is actually about. So that's the messianic secret. The second one is the son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it over 75 times in the Gospel of Mark. It's the very specific phrase that's taken from Daniel chapter 7, in which 
we have this vision from Daniel about the future where the ancient of days or God himself is seated on a throne. He says, who will go for us? And this son of man character steps forward and he is presented with the opportunity to have and hold the eternal kingdom of God. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a claim to him being divine. It's a claim to him being God. And it's a claim to him being God's representative of the world. It's also a little bit kind of sheepish way of him saying, I'm actually from heaven. And everybody who heard that title had to question, who is this guy claiming to be? Now there's this theme as well, the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has come to preach and proclaim, that he has inaugurated or set apart a new kingdom on earth through himself and that he's the one who's bringing it to pass. It doesn't look like the Jewish kingdom. It doesn't look like the Roman kingdom. It doesn't look like any earthly kingdom. It's actually completely upside down, where the greatest has to serve the least, where the greatest of the kingdom of God is the one who's willing to put themselves low and submit under kingdom rule and reign under the lordship of Jesus. I just turned that off by accident. Give me a sec. Excellent. And then there's this this one. Jesus actually doesn't make a claim about his own identity until the end of Mark's gospel. But the question has been prompted all the way through, who is Jesus really? And it always comes on the back of the things that Jesus does. Has very little to do with what Jesus says. In fact, Mark's gospel holds the fewest times where Jesus teaches in any of the gospel records. He does more miracles in the gospel of Mark's first half than some of the other gospel records hold in their entirety. And so what's he trying to prove? I am God based on the things that I'm doing. No mere human can do the things that Jesus has done. And so it's always in our minds, who is this Jesus guy really? And then this one that we're going to be dealing with today, the cost of discipleship. If we're honest, most of us have it very easy to be a Christian in the West. Very easy. This is not the case for the Brubakers in Germany and what they went through in Kiev. This is not true for our brothers and sisters who are in China who are meeting in private today because it's illegal to be a Christian. It's not true for friends of ours who are brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia and in in Middle Eastern countries who cannot worship God because it is illegal to forego any Muslim faith and follow Jesus. We can admit that it's easy for us. Doesn't mean it doesn't have its challenges, but the cost must be paid. And those are the themes of Mark. Here's another way to look at the book of Mark, because we're halfway through, I want you to really have this in your mind. The first half is the question, who is Jesus, like I said? Who is Jesus really, based on the things that he does, based on his claim to be the son of man, based on all these different things we looked at in the last slide? And then in the centerpiece, this very short three-verse section of 27, 28, and 29, we get the answer. This is who Jesus is. And then the next half of the book is all about why Jesus came. It's less about the fact that he is the Messiah, and now it's about what Messiahship actually looks like. And that was the very first thing that Jesus said in Mark's gospel, as Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are God's chosen. And Jesus' response was, yes, but you don't know what that looks like yet. You've got your mind set on earthly things, not on kingdom things. And now what he's going to do for us in Mark chapter 8 Verses 34 through 9, verse 1, is answered this question. Having sight and understanding kingdom cost. There is a cost to being part of God's kingdom. Grace is free. Salvation is a free gift. 
but there is absolutely a cost attached. And those things are not at odds with one another. They actually go perfectly hand in hand. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read the passage that we're in together this morning. It's in Mark chapter 8, 34 through 9, verse 1, and then we'll dive in. This is God's word. And calling to the crowd and, the, and his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain all of the world yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God as it has come in power. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. So this passage obviously falls off the heels of last week where we have this exchange between Peter and Jesus where Jesus is rightly identified by Peter. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, Messiahship looks like this, that I'm going to be ridiculed, chastised, beaten and broken, eventually killed, and then three days rise again. And Peter goes, not a chance, not allowing it to happen. Jesus goes, no, Peter, you don't understand. This is the entire purpose for why I've come. And so that flows right after this. And then Jesus makes the call to the disciples and the crowds of people, if you want to be about my business, if you want to be about my kingdom, this is what it requires. This is what it looks like for you to be a kingdom Christian. So the big idea is that having clarity about the cost of the kingdom is essential for every Christian. It's non-negotiable. We have to get this right. So let's get into the text. Jesus said, calling the crowd to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, this is the whole key to the passage, take up a cross and follow. Notice a few things about this verse in particular. It says, if anyone would. That's an inclusive claim, right? Christianity is generally seen by our world as exclusive. We're about the things that we're against. We're, we're about things that, that the world doesn't align with, that we're, we're at odds with the world systems, right? Is that true? So the claim is, well, Christians aren't really inclusive because they won't, they won't include me with all of my stuff. No, Jesus will include us with all of our stuff. He just doesn't want to leave us there. And so he says, if anyone would come after me, here's the inclusive claim. They, can, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. What does this come after me idea mean? One, it's that Jesus is setting the pace. And the, the best word picture I could kind of think about with this was uh, a couple winters ago, I remember taking my little guy, Campbell, he was probably five at the time, uh, to a friend's house who has a pretty steep hill in, in their backyard. It's not a super big hill, because I'm not lugging the, the, the sled all the way back up all the time. Uh, but it's, it's a good size enough for him to be able to slide down the hill and have a good time. There was one winter a couple years ago, we had a whole lot of snow, and it was, I was like trudging through the snow to, up to my knees, right? So as I was going, my little guy, who's five, he's obviously not going to be able to keep pace. So what do I have to do? I have to take shorter steps. And what's he going to do? He's going to step in my footsteps, right? Does that make sense? That's, the, that's kind of the word picture here. Jesus is saying, you've got to come after me. In rabbinical terms, what this looked like was the first century rabbis, they would choose students, they would follow after the rabbi, and the idea was that they should be so close to the rabbi that they actually catch the dust on their clothes off the rabbi's feet. 
You're so close to the rabbi that when, when the rabbi stirred up a little bit of dust as they walked to the next place, that the disciples of the rabbi would catch it on their clothes and they were so in tune with them. That's the imagery. But then he says, deny himself. Take up a cross and follow. Now, denying ourselves is not what we do naturally. Can we agree to that? We generally like what we like and we like it that way. And then when other people start to upset that, we start to notice that we're selfish. And then we battle against the selfishness because we don't want to be told that we're selfish. But this is what Jesus is saying. You must deny yourself. You must count yourself as less than. And then he says the most astonishingly culturally radical thing possible. He says you need to take up a cross and follow. Now, for those of us who have been in church for a long time, we think about the idea of taking up a cross as pretty, pretty familiar because we've been through the seasons of Easter maybe multiple times or seasons on seasons, decades on decades. We hear the story of Good Friday and how Jesus died on the cross to provide for the salvation from our sins. But in this culture, to take up a cross meant one thing and one thing only. You're not coming back. Every single person in the ancient world knew this statement. This person was carrying their cross beam on their shoulders to the place where they were going to be executed. On the journey to the place where they would be killed, the spectators would jeer at them and they would spit at them and beat them and try and push them down even further. This was a, a mockery of exponential categories. This was looking at somebody as though they were the worst of the worst, this criminal who couldn't possibly have done anything possibly worse and was a spectacle of horrendous proportions. The Romans didn't just know how to execute a person. They knew how to make it hurt. Historians and, and medical scholars agree that the crucifixion was still to this day probably the most horrendous way of death that anybody could endure. Oftentimes people would hang on a cross for days, suffocating and drowning in their own blood as it rose into their lungs. This is not a nice thing. And so what Jesus is saying is, you want to be mine? Absolutely you can. This is the cost. Are you willing to deny yourself, understand that you must take up the thing of death and follow after me? Because I'm setting the pace. I'm doing it first. I'm going to the cross. Everyone who saw crucifixion knew that one thing for certain. I'm not coming back. You know that old hymn? I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no coming back. That's the way that it should be. Now, oftentimes as a pastor, what I hear people say is, this is my cross to bear. You ever heard that phrase? This is my cross to bear. Now, when I'm coming to Jesus, this is the thing that I have to continue to deal with. This is, this is going to be my struggle for my life. And this is the thing that I'm, I'm, just, I'm, holding, I'm holding on to and I'm holding on to Jesus because this is just going to be the struggle of my life. This is the passage they get that from. But this passage has nothing to do with that. This passage has everything to do with, am I willing to allow myself to come under the authority of Jesus and follow him in so close a way, I get the dust of his feet on me, and that I'm willing to do the very thing that he was willing to do, die for somebody else. See, this isn't about doing something that's somewhat inconvenient or difficult. This call from Jesus to the disciples is to give up our lives for his purposes, for his honor, for his plan, for his kingdom. 
In the same way that Jesus has told them in the verses just before that he, as the Son of Man, had come to give his life, we have to be willing to give ours for him. Jesus is saying to us, absolutely anyone can come to me, but this is the cost. You're not coming back. Now, it seems harsh, but the reality is that thing inside of you that makes it feel harsh is the idol of I, right? It's the exact same for me. I tell this to my young adults all the time when I'm teaching. When I say hard truths, I'm yelling at myself, and you're just getting in the way. Because this is a truth that I have to remember. One commentator says it this way, we must put to death the idol of I. If we're not willing to do that, we can't follow Jesus. That's his call. That's the standard. It's not, well, here's a couple ways that you can get out of it, or here's some, here's some easier kind of learnings that, that might make it feel a little bit more comfortable for you. There's nothing comfortable about the cross. There's nothing comfortable about putting things to death. There's nothing comfortable about giving up our idols, especially the idol of self-adulation, of self-expression, of self-idealism, and of self-glory. And Jesus says, you want to be mine? This is what you have to give up. Because when you try and hold on to yourself, you're going to lose your life. He says, for whoever would save his life, he's primarily speaking about this in a physical sense, will lose it. But whoever loses his physical life for my sake, for the sake of Jesus and his gospels will what? Save it. Now he's making a contrast and comparison situation going on here. Because the very next verse says this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So here's what Jesus is doing. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, your soul is worth more than your body. He's saying, your physical life, this tent that you live in, if you're not willing to give it up, if you're not willing to give up these temporal pleasures, if you're not willing to give up these things that you think are the things that you need most, if you're not willing to put these things aside, deny those things in yourself, take up a cross, be willing to give it all and follow me, then you're going to forfeit the very thing that can't be destroyed, your soul. Saying your physical body is, is, is of ill consequence at this moment, guys. Your, your physical well-being is less important to God than your condition of your soul. Now, does that mean that God doesn't care about how we are physically? Of course not. He desperately loves and cares for his creation. But when it's, when it's at, at, at the cost of where we will be in eternity, Jesus goes, no, 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 I'm not going to be about that. Remember what he said before, guys, I, yes, I'm the Messiah, but being the Messiah means I'm willing to die for a different kingdom. It's not about this one. It's about a different one, a one to come. And then he posits the question. It's rhetorical, of course. What can a man give in return for his soul? It's actually a pretty common question in the Bible, especially in the day of Jesus. The rich young ruler, if you remember that story, says, Jesus, teacher, what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus looks him up and down and he says, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And it's the text says in Luke's gospel that the young rich ruler went away very sad, depressed, because he had great wealth. He wasn't ready to give it up. He was thinking, I have done all the right things. I have kept the law. I've been the good Christian. And, but this one thing I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to give up this temporal pleasure in order for myself to have eternal joy. 
See, the question is actually one of how much we value the life of Jesus. It's less about how much we value self. And I'm not saying we need to be self-deprecating. I'm not saying that we need to be putting ourselves down and think of ourselves as completely tarnished and terrible and awful. And God loves us where we're at, right? That's true. That's what we read from the scriptures, that he loved us to this extent that God gave his only son in order that we would not what? Die. So we would have everlasting life. But the question is, am I willing to give my life because Jesus' life is better? Is my life less than what Jesus' life is? Because if it is, then I'm not losing anything. If it's not, then I'm losing everything. David Platt, one of my favorite authors and pastors, says it this way. We in the West are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves. When the central message of Christianity is actually about self-denial. The central message to followership of Jesus is, will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow hard? Am I willing to do it? Have I counted the cost? Do I understand that this is going to require my life? Because if not, don't start. Because if we look at Jesus and we go, you are ultimately glorious, wonderfully perfect, and I want you in my life, I want you to change everything about me until there's this one thing you want me to let go of. We're not understanding just how beautifully perfect Jesus is. That if he's willing to give his earthly physical life in order that my soul may be saved, then who cares about the tent? Why is this thing so important? And I'm, I'm he's referencing my body as the fact that the stuff of the world, why is it so important? Why is it so gravitating? Why do we have to lean into it? Why are we so convinced it's going to fulfill us? No, the central message of our Christianity has become the exact opposite of what the Christianity of the Bible is about. Now, that sounds hard and harsh, but isn't it true? How many of us in the West know of Christians in churches who are shirking the responsibility to hold to the truth of God's word as it's clearly stated and saying, I would need a different option because this one's outdated. How many churches do we read about who are going the way of progression and denying what's been true for centuries? How many Christians, myself included, are more concerned about what God can benefit me than actually following hard after him and leaving the results to him? I'm not trying to be hard on this. This is Jesus' word. I'm not trying to, I'm not making this up. It's right here in the text. Because this, count the cost because whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, we're going to talk about that. Of him too will the son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, you know, the divine king, will also he be ashamed when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. See, this idea of the Son of Man, it is, yes, of course, about the fact that Jesus is the King, but he's also the judge. That's important for us to remember. 
Sometimes I think that we believe that Jesus is just our nice buddy who's kind of on the sides of our life who doesn't require anything of us, who just kind of wants us to be along for the ride and not participate in the job. Sometimes I think that we believe that Jesus is, if, if, if we actually understood what it cost for Jesus to give his life, separation from God, the perfect blood of the lamb sacrifice, we would live very differently, wouldn't we? We should, based on this. There is a cost associated with Jesus' kingdom. Now, he says this, this phrase here, this adulterous and sinful generation. He's actually made the exact same phrase earlier in Mark 8, verse 12, where the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes are going, if you really are who we assume you're saying you are, give us a sign. Show us. Show us who you really are. And Jesus goes, I'm not going to give you a sign to this adulterous and sinful generation. You're not going to believe it anyway. Why would I give you that? What does it benefit you for me to do something and you still not to believe. But he's saying, if in the same way, if we are willing to deny the Lord Jesus by being ashamed of him in the gospel, so too will his denial of us be present. Now that seems harsh and difficult, but what is Jesus saying here? Think about it in terms of any relationship that you have. What if I was embarrassed to be with my wife? How's she gonna feel? She certainly isn't gonna feel cherished and loved. Now, for those of us who are parents, when we take our kids out into a public space, sometimes they embarrass us with their behavior, right? We could acknowledge that. It doesn't mean that we don't love them, but we show people we don't love them when we act that way. Myself included. I'm yelling and you're just in the way. John Piper puts it this way, specifically about this passage. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. I've heard it time and time again, particularly from um, people who spoke on missions when I was in Bible college, to say, if somebody came up to you and put a gun to your head and said, if you're a Christian, I'm gonna kill you, what would your response be? Now, largely, I don't think any of us are likely to be put in that situation. I think it's an extreme question of a real reality that does happen in our world, by the way. But is the way that we're living showing that we love to be identified with Jesus? Are we so committed to the truth of his word that when we don't understand or that we're not sure of how it lines up or we might be concerned about whether or not we can follow it, are we willing to stand up and say, this is what God has said and I'm not willing to budge? Is that who we're going to be or are we going to be the other people who shirk our responsibility and are ashamed of Jesus? Because what does Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel is the power of salvation for all those who believe. That's the message we're giving people, right? If that's not the message, then it doesn't matter. If that is the message, everything hinges on this reality. I'm identifying with Jesus who has given his life for mine that I might be saved and so you would be saved. We have to be willing to give our lives for this reality. Loving to be identified with Jesus. Living in such a way that, that people question, how come you're different? And being able to give the response, because I'm covered in the dust of the teacher. 
Why is your life different? Because I'm willing to submit to his ownership, his lordship, and his rule instead of my own. I have to deny myself. This is oftentimes, however, where Christians get themselves in trouble because we start acting like we're better than. Can we just be really clear that we're not? Can we acknowledge that? That the church is a hospital? That the church is for broken people? That this gathering of believers is a bunch of people who are like just massive messes. And Jesus is slowly putting us back together step by step. Isn't that the goal? But we have to love being identified with Jesus in order for him to say to us at the end, which all of us want to hear, well done, good and faithful. Because the other side is also true. The other side is also true. He could see us and go, I never knew you. And that should terrify us to our core. And then Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, which is, this is Jesus saying, I swear to you. He's saying, verily, I swear to you that some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come and as it has come in power. Now there's some debate about what this text means because if Jesus was saying to the disciples, some of you aren't going to die until I come back the second time, well, then Christ has proved a liar and we have a problem. Or it could be that Mark has specifically placed this here to help us understand that Jesus' kingdom is everlasting. In the very next passage, in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, which I actually think should be Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and this really should be uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 39, is actually proved true when the three apostles, the three disciples, see Jesus as he's transfigured on the Mount of Olives. It's the very next statement. It's the very next thing that we're going to see in Mark chapter 9. And then they see that the kingdom of God is not just a place, it's not a thing, it's the person. It's the person of Jesus. He's saying, are you going to be about my kingdom and about me? Or are we going to look at that and say, it costs too much? We can't say it costs too much. Because what it did cost could never be paid back. Ever. No amount of our good deeds will ever make Jesus go, yeah, that's enough. No amount of our good works is ever going to make Jesus go, yeah, you've paid me back. I think I'm good. When we don't understand the holiness of God, when we don't understand the absolute perfection of Jesus, we lose ourselves in comparison to him, thinking that he's not really that much different than we are, that his blood is not that much different than ours. No, only Jesus has the ability to pay for sin because his blood was perfect, living a life that we could never live and dying a death that we would deserve to die. And yet he stands in our place. So what do we do? We have to understand this. Kingdom clarity and kingdom cost means this, that the kingdom costs Jesus' life. Do we know that? Like I know that we intellectually know it because we've heard it a bunch of times when we've been in church, but have we internalized this reality that the holiest, most perfect commodity that has ever existed has been laid down in opportunity for us to be reconciled to God? That Jesus tells the disciple plainly, the mission of the Messiah is to suffer and die in order to provide a new kingdom for those who would believe. 
The issue for us is to understand how valuable the blood of Jesus is. And we have a hard time grasping how good and glorious Jesus is because we fail to see how sinful we are apart from him. We're not all that bad. My sin's not all that bad. It's certainly not as bad as those people, right? Jesus looks at that and goes, no, 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 it's all the same. And only my blood can cover it. The issue here is that we don't see this as an unfair trade. His life for ours, nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why he says, you want to follow me? You absolutely can take up a cross, deny self. The kingdom costs us nothing we cannot afford to lose. I had a really hard time wordsmithing this phrase. I was trying to figure out, how do I get away from the double negative thing? And how do I figure out how to make it make sense? This is the best I could do. Verse 35 through 37. Look at it again in the Bible. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospels will save it. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Let me, let me be as clear as I can about this. Anything that Jesus has commanded or requested from us to do away with is for our good and benefit and flourishing. The Christian life is not a bunch of to-dos and to-don'ts so that we can look good. It's mostly so that we can be protected from our own choices. Jesus commands, don't kill people. Well, how come? Well, because killing people is really fun. No. What are the consequences of that? Don't lust. Don't have greed in your heart. How come? Because those things are really enjoyable. No, because he's protecting us from ourselves. Anything that is of the world system that Jesus says, if you lay this down, it will be better for you. We have to trust this for our benefit and for our joy. Now, here's what's true about our society. We are built on self-gratification, aren't we? Western society, what are we about? Instant gratification. Getting what I want when I want it because I want it, right? You hungry? We have fast food. You don't have money? You can get a credit card and they'll pay it for you. Kind of. We have this thing inside of us that my deepest desire is to be fulfilled with whatever I can provide for myself. Instead of understanding that being part of the kingdom means I'm willing to put that down, deny what's inside of me because I know what Jesus has is better. The kingdom never costs us something we can't afford to lose. It only ever costs us what is better for us. Jesus says, if you don't do this, this will be better. Then we have to trust the fact that what he says is better. We need to try asking ourselves, what in my life is hindering me from fully following Jesus? What is the cost? Because whatever that thing is, that's what Jesus is commanding us to lay down. To count that cost, to see that we lack nothing should we lose it, is exactly the point. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy our heart's longings apart from Christ. So why would we look to fulfill those things and satisfy ourselves outside of him? Because we're all about me. We're all about us. We haven't yet put to death the idol of I every day. We might have done it once. Maybe we've done it twice. Maybe we do a really good job of it. But we got to do it every day. I love this quote. 
C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. R.C. Sproul says it this way. If gaining the whole world happens at the cost of our souls, there is no profit to us at all. Rather, we have sacrificed that which is supremely valuable for that which is worthless by comparison. What's he saying? Don't trade eternity for now. Don't. How many of you bought a good car before? Good car? Yeah. How long does the car last? Eternity? No, it lasts about until like the first oil change and then you're like, oh, you got to fix this, you got to fix this, you got to fix this, right? Now, I'm not saying good cars are bad. I'm not saying the things that God gives us are bad. But when we think of those things as better than the giver of the gift, we've missed the point. We sacrifice our souls in order to gain what is temporal that doesn't last. We shouldn't do it. And I think the most important for us to hear today is this, that the kingdom costs us love with the world. Family, we cannot be the same. We can't. Jesus has beckoned us to different and to better. Not better than, better than we were. We cannot love the world and live inside of God's kingdom. We can't love the world's systems. First John 2 says, don't love the world or the things of the world because if anyone loves the world, this is the scary part. The love of God is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the idol of I, is not from the Father. It's from the world. Why are people so captivated with themselves and needing to promote themselves? Because that's how we're built in our sinful condition. Because the world is passing away along with its desires. But look at this. Whoever does the will of God abides or lives forever. That's the point. James 4 says it this way, you adulterous people, you foolish generation, do you not know that friendship of the world is enemies with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God, a friend of the world, makes himself God's enemy. Now, there are so many passages that we can look to in the scriptures that say the same thing. The call of the disciples to be in the world and yet holy, set apart from it. Even now, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be so different from the world that our lives can't help but stand out. That the person that you work with goes, how come you're different? When your marriage is struggling, they say, how come you're sticking through it? When your kids are being disobedient and you're having a difficult time, I'm leading them to Jesus even though it's hard. When there's other things going on in your life that you could promote self, that Jesus says, don't do that. Serve, serve, serve. People ask the question, why are you different? And then you cannot be ashamed and point them to Jesus. Right? I got to wrap up, but I heard a, heard a heartbreaking and a very encouraging story over the weekend. A young lady in our church who was in a world religions class, and it was about Christianity. And the person that they brought in did not represent Christianity. Said for all the things that are against Christianity, all the things that are ashamed of Jesus, saying that his ways and his model and his methods are outdated and we need to do better, we need to do different. She got up and walked out because she would not be aligned with a Christ who does, is not the Jesus of the Bible. 17 years old, cannot be more proud of her.
The question is this, is our, is our final authority God and his word or is it my own feelings? Is it when I, am I willing to lift God's word high and say, this is what God says and I will die at the cost of this? Or am I willing to say, no, it's probably a bunch of stuff that's wrong and, and start to accuse God of being incorrect about what he's given us in his word? No, we have to be different. Because if we're just like the world, what are we calling them to? If we're just like the world, what right do we have to call them? If we're just like the world, how can they tell a difference? And if we're just like the world, will Jesus tell the difference? Here's the real nature of this, folks. Discipleship is hard. Following Jesus is hard. Oh, but it's worth it. We must count the cost, both of following Jesus and, hear me, and the cost of not following him. Hard sermon, right? Guess what? Gets better. Do you close your eyes for me while I read you this scripture about what it means to follow Jesus? Can I share with us what we gain One of my favorite passages, John the Apostle in the vision of the new earth, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have now passed away and there was no more sea. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as though a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is Jesus speaking, behold, For now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Why is the cost of the kingdom worth it? Because he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. The former things have passed away. He, King Jesus, who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I now make all things new. Write this down because these things are trustworthy and they're true. What do you gain? (laughs) An everlasting kingdom, a beautiful heavenly reality, perfection and glory in the presence of God apart from sin, apart from death, apart from pain and apart from anguish. Doesn't that sound good? All that we would yearn for this to be true for us that we would long for it to be the very focus of our lives. Having clarity about the cost of the kingdom is essential for every Christian. Let me tell you this, we do not do this alone. We need one another, desperately. We need one another to hold us to the cost of the kingdom. We need one another to hold us to what is true and to trust it with everything we've got so that the reality of Revelation 21 will be what we experience for eternity in joy and peace with God forever. Let's pray. God, I know that this is, this is, this is hard stuff. There'd be so many ways, so many easier ways and so many easier ideas to say to make this palatable, to make it uncostly to us. But Jesus, you were willing to give your blood so that we could inherit a kingdom. Help us remember that this, this alone 
is what we are to be focused on. Let us love you in an unashamed way, following you deeply, passionately, wholeheartedly. And may we do it together. As Paul says, until we accumulate the unity of the faith, that's what we want. Jesus, root out the sin of I in us that we may follow you well. For your glory and for our good, I pray. Amen.